I want to begin with the psalm for this week, Psalm 36, 5 to 10, and Augustine's, St. Augustine's reflections or exposition of the passage. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. This is the translation that I'm following in the, the lectionary that I'm using. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the strong mountains, your justice like the great deep. You save both man and beast, O Lord. How priceless is your love, O God. Your people take refuge under the shadow of your wings. They feast upon the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the well of life, and in your light we see light. Continue your loving kindness to those who know you, and your favor to those who, true, who are true of heart. Augustine, of course, is not reading the same translation I'm reading. He is working almost certainly with an old Latin Bible. The psalm, he knows this psalm as Psalm 35, and the verse numberings are slightly different as well. It's, it's important, I think, to realize that, that Augustine's Bible was, was not a closed book in the way it is for us, literally or figuratively. And he is quite aware, as all ancient readers would have been, of the issues of translation, the challenge of reading scripture in different languages, in different translations in those different languages, in a way that those of us who are raised in American evangelicalism speak one language, read one language, handle one Bible that's bound as one volume, that it's almost entirely lost on us. And it's a, one of the reasons that you might think of that as a gift, and I suppose in some ways it is, but I think it's more of a bad luxury. And it, it leaves us with the impression that there's a finishedness to Scripture that makes interpretation of Scripture simpler, more direct than it in fact is. And ancient, medieval, early modern readers, and in less privileged readers now, as well as better educated ones aren't under that illusion. And all that said, I don't, I don't want to go through the, everything that Augustine says about these passages, but I do want to draw attention to the ways in which he reads that line about feasting upon the abundance of your house. Because in, in the Bible he's using, it's not feasting upon the abundance of your house, but being inebriated by the rich abundance of your house. They will be inebriated by the rich abundance of your house. That's what his Bible um, said for him. And so I, I want to start there. And for him, that came in verse 9. So in, in our Bibles, at least the, the Bible that I'm using, it's Psalm 36, 8. For him, it would have been Psalm 35, 9. And here are his comments on that phrase. They will be inebriated by the rich abundance of your house. He has promised something very great. He is promising us something very great. He wants to name it, and he does not. Is it because he is unable to or because we cannot grasp it? And this, you'll see, and this is true of virtually everything Augustine writes, he's, and, and it's not unrelated to the fact of how he came to know the scriptures, what I was just saying about his sense of the Bible's openness and the open-endedness, the possibilities, virtually endless possibilities of interpretation and translation. He's, he's aware of the difficulty of bringing to speech what God wants us to understand and celebrates, revels in the difficulty of bringing it to speech. I make bold to assert, my brothers and sisters, that even the holy tongues and hearts through which the truth was proclaimed to us could not clearly state this thing they were announcing, nor could those holy preachers even think it. It is a great and unutterable reality. They glimpsed it partially and in enigmatic form, as the apostle says, and then he quotes 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. We see, and he adds his Bible adds this language, we see now a tantalizing reflection in a mirror, but then face to face. And gazing at puzzling reflections, they blurted out what they saw. 
What shall we be like when we come to see face to face what they labored in their hearts to conceive, but could not bring to birth with their tongues in any way that people could comprehend? In, in other words, encountering God impregnates the apostles and the prophets. And in trying to bring to speech what the word of God in them, they trying to bring to speech the word of God that has been seeded in them, it proves to be too much. And they and they can't they can't quite do it. He searched for some I'm back, I lost my place. They labored in their hearts to conceive, but could not bring to birth with their tongues in any way that people could comprehend. Under what pressure of necessity did the psalmist say, they will be inebriated by the rich abundance of your house, right? So this is trying to speak about what God is doing is, is like a contraction, right? He's, he's laboring to yield to the pressure, right? He's trying to breathe with the contraction and to push. And, and yet he can't quite bring fully to speech what it is that he his heart wants to say. He searched for some expression derived from human experience which he could use to say what he meant. He saw people immersing themselves in drunkenness, talking, taking too much wine, and losing their senses. Then he knew how he must express it. For we have been given a joy beyond all telling. The human mind almost vanishes, becoming in some sense divinized, and is inebriated by the rich abundance of God's house. This is why another psalm, which is for us Psalm 23, but for him Psalm 22, ends by saying, How excellent is your intoxicating chalice. And that is how Augustine's Bible read. Ours, of course, is my cup overflows. Right? My cup overflows. The end of Psalm 23. On this chalice were the martyrs drunk when they went forth to their passion with scarcely a glance for their own relatives. What could be more like drunken behavior than failing to recognize a weeping wife or children or parents? Yet the martyrs did not recognize them or even notice that these people were there before their eyes. How did they come to be so drunk? It is easy to see how. They drank from a cup that would intoxicate them. And the psalmist thanks God, saying, What? return shall I make to the Lord for all his bounty to me. I will take in my hands the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Psalm 115, Psalm 116. Let us be sons of men, my brothers and sisters. And he's just earlier in this exposition, he's made this contrast between men and beasts and that there are some, you'll see this, this will show up later in Origins Reflections on John 2, but he makes this distinction between those who are sons of men in that they've entered into the kind of humanity, ways of living the human life that are faithful to their created vocation, and others who do not, who live beneath it and are animal-like, beastly. And so he, when he says here, let us be sons of men, he means let us live up into that, that humanity. Let's be true to our humanity. Let us hope under the shelter of his wings and be inebriated by the rich abundance of his house. I have spoken of it as best I could, and I contemplate it as best I can, but in how I see it cannot be put into words. So he admits that his, that his own reading doesn't quite work. And then, having made that admission, he, he comes to the next line of the psalm, which again is for, for us is in verse 8, and for him is in verse 9, that you give them drink from the river of your delights. Water rushing with mighty force is called a torrent. And that's the word that's used in his translation. God's mercy, well, the Latin equivalent of torrent. God's mercy will flow with mighty force to water and inebriate those in this present life, those who in this present life fix their hope beneath the shadow of his wings. What is that delight? It is like a torrent that inebriates the thirsty. Let any who are thirsty now fix their hopes there. Let the thirsty have hope, because one day, inebriated, they will have the reality. Until they have the reality, let them thirstily hope. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He, he quotes Matthew 5, 6. And then in verse 9, what is for him verse 10, he turns to that 
double, that layering of metaphors of life and light, the well of life or the fountain of life and the light in which we see light. And this, this line, those of you who know Augustine's work know that he, he comes again and again to this phrasing in your light, we see light, that it, it is the being of God that makes the, our being who we are possible. We are who we are because God is who God is. And we are able to live our own lives because God's life is lived for us and in us. But here, he's mostly interested in the the doubling of this metaphor of fountain and light. And he he sounds drunk. (laughs) He is himself inebriated by the contemplation on this passage. By what fountain will you be watered then? And whence will that great torrent of his delight flow? With you is the fount of life, the psalm says. Who is the fount of life if not Christ? He came to you in the flesh to bedew your thirsty throat, but he who besprinkled the one who thirsts will flood the one who hopes. For with you is the fount of life, and in your light we we will see light. In our world, a fountain is one thing and light another, not so there. The reality that is a fountain is light also. You may call it what you will, because it is not what you call it. You may call it what you will, because it is not what you call it. You cannot find a suitable name, because it is not captured by any one name. If you want to say that it is light, and only light, someone might object. What then was the point of telling me that I am to hunger and thirst? Can anyone eat light? That other hint that was given was obviously more apt. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I had better prepare my eyes then. So he imagined someone saying, what, what good is thirst if what I'm given is light? And he insists, you know, you're called both to thirst and to the desire to see because God is light and water. Yes, prepare your throat as well as your eyes because the reality that is light is also a fountain, a fountain because it drenches the thirsty, light because it illumines the blind. Here below we sometimes find light in one place and a fountain somewhere else, for fountains may gush even in darkness, while you may suffer from the sun in the desert and find no fountain. Here below the two may be separated, but there you will never flag, because there will be the fountain for you, and you will never walk in darkness, for there is light. And and of course there is is no place but God, right? God is God's own place. And out of that confidence, inebriated by God's life, a life that is everything we need, that is more than we can describe, we're able to be conformed to God's will. So in the translation I'm using, verse 10 reads, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your favor to those who are true of heart. For Augustine, that's verse 11, and it reads like this, extend your mercy to those who know you and your justice to those who are right of heart. This deals with a subject on which I have often talked to you. Those people are right of heart who in this life obey the will of God. Suppose God's will is that you should sometimes be healthy, sometimes ill. If God's will is sweet to you when you are in good health, but sour when you are sick, you are not right of heart. Why not? Because you are not prepared to align your will with the will of God, but are trying to pervert His to fit yours. His will is straight, yours crooked. Your will must be straightened by alignment with his, not his bent to correspond with yours. And then you will have an upright heart. If things in this world are going well, bless God who gives you consolation. If things are going badly, bless God who corrects and tests you. Then you will be right of heart, and you will be able to say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be in my mouth always. Now, of course, I'm going to have some trouble, and I suspect at least some of you will too, with what Augustine says as he says it. But before I come to any kind of an attempt at correction or rephrasing, I I think it's important to stop and remember that he's already told us he's drunk, that he's, he's carried away talking about things that are too, too much to talk about, right? He's, He's trying to bring to speech more than he can bring to speech. And the right way to hear him is to hear him as someone who is intoxicated or 
as a mother who's in the throes of childbirth without the benefits of painkiller, right? Without any kind of special aid, any pharmaceutical help to deal with the pain. So I, I think if we hear that rightly, and not just Augustine, I think we should hear all Christian theologians, all preachers who are who are in labor or who are intoxicated with, with the Spirit and understand we have to we have to make adjustments. We have to hear them knowing what condition they're in. So if we do hear that, then I think what we can say that's what that say in in agreement with Augustine is that there is a rightness of heart that is a yieldedness to God's will, even in the midst of bad circumstance, even even when things are not going our way. I, I think Augustine implies, and maybe outright says, and certainly in other places he does outright say, that when ill fortune comes your way, that's God bringing it to you. And that when bad things happen to you, it's God testing you or God correcting you, etc. But I, I think the best way to hear what he wants to say, what he's laboring to bring to speech, is that when things are not going your way, God is still at work in what is happening to you, not by making what is happening to you happen to you. You know, so the the loss of a job, or or much more seriously, the loss of a relationship, the loss of a child, the loss of a parent, the loss of a friend, to death or to betrayal. And in in those losses, God is not taking these people from you. God is not stripping any good from your life. But God can and is at can be and is at work in what is being taken from you. So that there, there's a way in which life is happening, things are going on, though the events of your life are going badly. They're not what you want, right? And yet what God is doing is somehow still good. And to be right of heart, I would argue what Augustine even what what he wants to say about being right of heart is trust in the midst of your bad circumstance that God is working good. That that once you see him in your circumstance, you'll see your circumstances differently. In in his light you will see light. I want I want to keep that theme of inebriation and and turn to the gospel, which is John 2, which is a story about water being turned to wine. John 2, and, and I'm going to shift from Augustine to Origen as a primary dialogue partner or teacher. So this is the gospel, the translation that I have. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you or to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out, and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine, after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. There's so much I want to say about this passage, but first let, let's take up Origen's comments. So in his commentary on John, in book 10 of his commentary, he's engaging in the passage I'm, I'm about I'm going to start with, he's engaging the miracles in Capernaum and offering a kind of synthesis of the accounts. And he, he draws attention to the ways in which, in what we would call the the synoptics, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is preaching and performing miracles. And he 
observes that in John 2, we're told that this, that this miracle at Cana is the first of Jesus' signs. So he, he realizes that we have a kind of discrepancy here, right? The, 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 the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I use that term really tentatively. I'm not, I, I think that, that it's easy for that term to mislead us, but be that as it may, the first three Gospels show Jesus working miracles in Capernaum and proclaiming the Gospel in Capernaum. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says. But then John tells us that he performs this sign, turning water to wine in these six pots, and that this is the first of his signs. So listen to what Origen makes of that. The following observation has also been made about Capernaum. Not only did he begin to preach there, but also according to the three evangelists, he performed his first miracles there. None of the three, however, in relation to the wonders he recorded, to have occurred first in Capernaum, has made the comment of the disciple John in relation to the first work when he says, the beginning of signs did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. And then this is what Origen concludes. What occurred in Capernaum was not the beginning of the signs. So, yes, there was a way in which, historically speaking, our, my word, not his, but just on the timeline, Jesus did miracles in Capernaum first. He, he proclaimed the gospel there first. But it wasn't the beginning of signs. There were miracles, but they were not signs because, and now I'm quoting Origen again, good cheer is the essential characteristic of the signs of the Son of God. Good cheer is the essential characteristic of the signs of the Son of God. But because of the critical circumstances which have befallen men, the word exhibits his special beauty, not so much by his service in healing those who have suffered, as in cheering with his sober wine. I lost my place. As in cheering with his sober wine. Hold on, sorry. I really don't want to start over again. Recording, I mean. Okay, here, I found it. Thank you for bearing with me. Healing those who have suffered. It's not so much by his service in healing those who have suffered, as in cheering with his sober wine, those who, because of their health, are also able to participate in feasting. So he says that the, the real mark, the special beauty of Jesus' work is not lifting up those who are suffering from their suffering, but in cheering those who can participate. In, in bringing them his sober drink or his sober his sober wine. And this this notion of good cheer shows up everywhere in Origins John commentary. And it's tied to the language of first John that we should be of good cheer because Christ has overcome the world. And and this is a world we need not fear anymore because Christ is victorious, and he's victorious through the shedding of his blood. And that relationship between the blood of Christ and the wine of, that Christ makes and the cheer that his wine brings to us is a kind of essential theme in the gospel for, for Origen. Listen to what he says. This is in book one, I think. Yeah. In, in book one of his commentary on John, he's reflecting here on what it means to call Jesus the true vine, even though, of course, that comes later in the, in the Gospel of John. John 15, 1, I am the true vine. He's already reflecting on that in book one. And listen to what he says about what it means to refer to Christ as the true vine. This will be obvious to those who understand the following statement in a manner worthy of the grace the prophets received. It will be obvious what we mean when we say Christ is the true vine if we hear rightly this saying from the prophets. Wine cheers the human heart. Wine cheers the human heart. For if the heart is the intellectual part, and what cheers it is the most delectable reason, which completely rids it of human concern 
and causes it to experience ecstasy and to be intoxicated with an intoxication which is not irrational but divine. An intoxication which is not irrational but divine. I think it is this intoxication with which Joseph also intoxicates his brothers. It is reasonable, and that's a reference to the Genesis story, it is reasonable that he who brings the wine which cheers the heart of human beings is the true vine. He is true because he has the truth as grapes, and as branches he has the disciples, his imitators, who themselves also bear the truth as fruit. It is difficult, however, he continues, to present the difference between the bread and the vine, since he says he is not only the vine, but also the bread of life. But see if perhaps it is like this. As bread nourishes and strengthens and is said to sustain the heart of man, but wine pleases and cheers and confounds, so the ethical teachings, since they preserve life for the one who learns and carries them out, are the bread of life. These would not be said to be the fruit of the vine, but the esoteric and mystical doctrines come from the true vine and are called wine because they cheer and produce ecstasy, being present in those who delight in the Lord and desire not only to be nourished, but also to revel in him. Not only to be nourished, but also to revel in him. So you can see that for Origen, as, as for Augustine, there's this kind of distinction between the mercy of God for those who are broken, those who are emptied out, those who are too weak to act on their own strength, and the mercy of God for those who are mature, are those who are ready, have reached a point in their life in which they've been healed enough to begin to revel in God. And I think this is the this is the right way to understand Christian maturity. Like we we do not want to think about Christian maturity as a movement from weak to strong, in a, or from a lesser grace to a greater grace, as a move toward greater independence or superiority in any sense. But we do need a distinction between those who are not able to carry their own weight or the weight of others and those who are able to bear their own burden and the burdens of others. We, we need that distinction. And we need it precisely because for a community to be a community, some have to take the initiative for the sake of all. And this cannot be, and I'm here, if Augustine was overmatched by what he's saying, I'm, I'm more than overmatched by how to say it. I, I think it's still something we, we have to strive to say, and not simply because Scripture speaks of it that way, but because it's true that for a community to, to work the way God intends it to work, for, for a community to be aligned or attuned to the work God is doing in the lives of the people who make that community, there have to be some who are mature who are in a sense strong because they're at ease enough with their own weakness to be weak with God, to be weak with others, and are able to revel in the Lord. Not, not simply to be fed, to live from day to day, and not simply waiting on God to heal them, but are actually able to, to take joy in God. Right. And Origen, as you can hear, suggests that the Scripture works as we need it to work. So for some of us, Scripture is the bread of life. And what we need is to be sustained. Give us this day our daily bread. There's nothing in the Lord's Prayer about daily wine. right? But there are ways in which as long as we are being sustained, as long as we have the strength to be at peace with our weakness in the presence of God, then we can learn. We can find that we are called into a kind of intimacy with God that is ecstatic, that is delighting in God, that is marked by this good cheer. And I... I think, and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anyone else, 
when when you've been in and around communities where there's a kind of selfish concern with the experience of God, where people are looking for the wrong kind of intoxication, the wrong kind of wine of the Spirit, it's easy to kind of react against that and think that the Christian life is a life of sheer neediness, right? That the, the, the famous line from Luther, we are beggars all. And to, and to imagine that Christian maturity looks like living on bread alone in, in origin sense. But I, I, I don't think we want to entirely lose, even though we want to hear it differently. And maybe the key to hearing it differently is that language of the sober drink, right? Uh, Renero Cantalamesa has some wonderful meditations on, on what this means, the sober drink of the spirit, the sober wine, the sober intoxication, which is a theme not only in origin, but in many church fathers, that the wine of the spirit in one way makes us drunk, but it makes us drunk in the way that God is drunk. It's divine. And it fills us up with the sobriety of God, which is the joy of the Lord. So hopefully in all of this, you're, you're getting a sense for, for that which I can't quite bring to speech. And I want to shift next to talking about briefly about Bonifer, Bonifer's reading of 1 Corinthians and how I think that provides a grounding and an orientation for what we've heard from Augustine and from Origen. But two two quick points to say before that. One is I this passage in Maximus, Maximus Confessor, in his work on questions from Scripture, he engages John to and specifically asks, this is question 40, what is signified by the number of the six jars at the wedding in Cana of Galilee? And it's it's a brief response. So this is the question. It's a part of the difficulties in Scripture in responses to Thalassios. Question 40. What is signified by the number of the six jars at the wedding in Cana? God, who created human nature, simultaneously gave it being and the power of intention and thus join to this nature the creative power to realize what is proper to it. The six jars signify this natural creative power to perform the divine commandments. The six jars signify the natural creative power to perform the divine commandments. Now, you're probably thinking, well, how can a jar, which is formed and is in a very real sense passive, how can it perform? How is it creative? It is itself created, and it's it's not a machine that functions in a sense under its own power. I mean, it's a vessel. And that's precisely the point that Maximus is going to make. Human beings, however, poured out the knowledge of this power in their vain preoccupation with material things and came to possess this power as something something empty and waterless. This is why they did not know how to cleanse themselves from the stain of evil, because someone who has no share in knowledge is completely ignorant of the way in which virtue cleans, cleanses vice. This was the situation that prevailed until the arrival of the Word, the creator of nature, who filled the power of natural knowledge, which is able to perform the things proper to it, and changed it into wine. So he fills nature up with water and then changes it to wine, which is beyond nature, the principle of nature itself. Those who drink of it stand outside the nature of all things and fly off to the hidden place of divine interiority where they receive the joy and delight that transcends all multiform knowledge. They drink the good wine, that is the ineffable word who brings about divinization, which they drink last after all the dispensations given by providence on behalf of mankind. With respect to the number six, we understand it to signify the creative power of nature, not simply because God created heaven and earth in six days, but also because the number six alone is the most perfect number contained in the decade of numbers, of numbers and as a number is constituted from its own parts. So that there's all kinds of symbolism here. He's drawing on 
a, a tradition in Jewish and Christian philosophy regarding uh, the power of numbers. And But he's attending to the ways in which six is a kind of perfection. Further, Scripture says that the jars held two or three measures, since they contain, according to natural contemplation, as if it were two measures, the natural potential of practice, which is the entire knowledge of created beings, by which I mean they contain the knowledge of corporal natures composed of matter and form, and the intelligible essences composed of substance and accidents, which is to say comprehensive knowledge of corporal and incorporeal realities. According to the mystagogical initiation into theology that is accessible to our nature, they contain, as if it were, three measures, the knowledge and illumination of the Holy Trinity, that is of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I leave it to you then, as people of knowledge, to consider that which remains, namely how the general power of nature that is creative of superior superior things is divided into the six general modes of the virtues. And he continues from there. Talks about love, talks about the ways in which nature is the master. There, nature is the master of the banquet. And I want to show that the bridegroom is the is the human intellect. The mother of the word is the true and unsullied faith. He gives a, a not quite allegorical reading of the passage, but listen to the way that he can he concludes the, this longer reflection. May we always be celebrating a wedding such as this, with Jesus present with his own mother so that he might restore to us the knowledge that flowed away from us on account of sin and change it into our divinization, change it unto our divinization, which separates the intellect from the genesis of beings and fortifies the knowledge of nature, giving it the strength to be immutable, just as water is fortified by the quality of wine. So part of what is astounding about this, and one of the reasons I... I want to draw attention to it, is, is the ways in which it, like what we heard from Origen, like what we heard from Augustine, is so unlike our normal ways of reflecting on Scripture, preaching, talking about the faith. And it's one of the reasons I think it's so essential not only to read the Scripture, but to read what the people of God have read in the Scripture. And not only the Church Fathers by any means, but certainly also the Church Fathers. And part of what you sense, I think, from all of them is this confidence that there are layers there to to the meanings of Scripture, right? That Scripture always yields more than we expect, right? Not only a difference between the letter and the Spirit, but also the ways in which the letter of the text has yields harvests, and the Spirit of the text yields harvests. And we, we have to come to the text as people who are either in need, we're, we're like those in Capernaum, to use the language of origin, who, are, who need God's action. We need to be healed. We need to hear the gospel. But we are not in a position to help anyone else. Or we are like the people at the wedding of Cana who are ready not simply to, to receive bread, but to be given a share in wine, to delight in God. And if we do, if we do come to the place where we can share in the wine of God, then I think what Maximus is, is suggesting is that that actually does something to our nature. It makes it so that we fulfill our human vocation. So if I can distill all of this, no pun intended, distill all of this, it's to say origin Augustine, Maximus, they all share this sense that there is a way of knowing God. There is a, a kind of prayer that leads to intoxication. There is a study of scripture that leads to intoxication. There's a way of being with God, communing with God, not only in the Eucharist, not only in com holy conversation with, with friends of the Lord, but also in prayer and in study of scripture that leads to intoxication, but it's an intoxication that empowers you to fulfill your human vocation so that you're not always simply receiving, but you're able to give and that you're able to give because you are caught up in delight in God. You are intoxicated 
and in that sense empowered by the Lord. But one of the marks, last thing I'll say about this, and then we'll shift to Bonhoeffer. One of the marks of the Lord's intoxication is humility. And, and if you brag when you're drunk on the Lord, you don't brag on yourself, right? And what we heard from Augustine in that opening passage is he's, he's to be drunk on the Lord is not to be drunk on your own abilities. It's not to be intoxicated with your own power. Just the opposite, right? To be drunk on the Lord is to be intoxicated with his humility and his delight in your neighbor as well as in you. And when you are intoxicated with this wine, with the wine that is the Holy Spirit, then you are always aware that you're never able to bring to speech what has been seated in your heart. And, and one of the marks of truly Christian humility is a, a kind of a humility about language, right? a sense that we do not know what to say. We do not know how to pray as we ought, which is a, a passage that Origen celebrates. And we do not know how to preach as we ought. We don't know how to speak a word of counsel as we ought. And the closer we get to the word, the more aware we are that our words are not able to bear everything the word is for us and for others. They're adequate. I almost said our words are not adequate, but that's not quite right. Our words don't quite fail, but they can't bring everything to bear. And the work of the Spirit that saturates our, saturates our speech is, there's room for the Spirit to saturate our speech precisely when we acknowledge that our speech is, is not able to bear all of the weight of glory. So with that said, I think we're set up for 1 Corinthians 12, which is, of course, a passage about the work of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 to 11. And I want to let Dietrich Bonhoeffer be our teacher, our guide with this text. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were enticed and led astray to idols that could not speak. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, let Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Before I get to Bonifer and before I continue reading, just notice that there's this contrast between idols that cannot speak and a God who makes it so that we can speak the truth. Right, so there's an obvious contrast right, between idols who cannot speak and the living God who speaks. But the mark of this living God, the only living God, is not only that he speaks, but he makes it so that we can speak and we can speak the truth. And the Spirit of God in particular is God giving us voice, God making it so that we can speak. When we talk in terms of doctrines of inspiration and we say that the Spirit spoke by the prophets, we are, we're not affirming some kind of fundamentalistic account of inerrancy, some, or, and even less so an account of mechanistic writing so that the Spirit possesses the prophet and the apostle and they dictate what is being given to them. Just the opposite, right? The Spirit of God is speaking precisely in the man and woman of God struggling, as Augustine says, to bring to speech what cannot be brought to speech. Right, that that line in Augustine, like they they could not say. They're striving, they're laboring to say what has happened in their heart. Right, they they are stammering because there's too much to try to get out. And I think this is a remarkable thing about our God. Right, that not only does He speak, but He makes it so that we can speak. He He makes our tongues ready. Now, there are varieties of gifts, to continue the passage, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of services, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. One God, active in all of these members. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, or the word of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith 
by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the work, the working of miracles. And I think the point, by the way, in there is that the healings, the, they're gifts of healing, but one Spirit. And that's why Paul shifts from same Spirit to one Spirit. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the discernment of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by one and the same Spirit. Now, what's fascinating there, right, is we're told it is one God, the same God, who activates all of these services and activities in everyone. And here we're told all of these are activated by one and the same Spirit, who allots to each one individually just as the Spirit chooses. So there, there is a, a doctrine of the Trinity at, at work here, but I don't want to engage that at this point. I want to instead turn to Bonifer and his reflections on this passage. And, and this comes, the, what I'm going to share with you, comes from his lectures at Finkenwalde, the, the underground, the hidden seminary, from 1935 to 1937, before it was before it was shut down. And there are a couple of different places in, in this collection of his notes and letters and sermons and his students' notes from his lectures, where he's describing this passage and what it means for the function of the church. And so I, I'm not going to take a lot of time with it, but I, I just want to highlight a few things that he says about 1 Corinthians 12, and in particular, the, the charismata, what it is that the Spirit is doing. It, this is in a section on the pastoral offices and gifts in the Christian life. And the, the actual title is The Space of the Pastoral Offices and Gifts. And I want to pick up here. The organization of the body is established with the body itself, and indeed is established by God. It is not some arbit arbitrary church constitution, nor some willful search for an appropriate form for this particular content. Instead, the form is immediately posited with that content content. Indeed, such distinction between content and form is basically impossible, precisely because it is a whole that has been posited by God. So here's here's a kind of ecclesiological point that American evangelicals, by and large, have missed entirely, because we do think of the gospel as content that can be translated in any form or virtually any form. And Bonifer's insisting, no, 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 the form and the content are, are given by God. They're not for our construal. The body of Christ is the body that has been given over to death in a vicariously representative fashion. In it, the law of vicarious representative action is actualized. It is the body given for our benefit on our behalf. The organizational law of this body is thus that of service. Service grounded by the unity of the body as the body of Christ service directed toward the community, service implemented by the individual members, right? So the, what marks us in the language here, there's varieties of gifts, varieties of services, and varieties, varieties of activities, the same spirit. But it's the Lord, the varieties of services are grounded in the same Lord who is Jesus, right? And, the, and the, what he calls the organizational law of this body is that of service, and in, this is utterly astounding to me. He, he begins to reflect on the relationship between services and the manifestation, right? So in the, the translation we, that I'm using, to each is given the manifestation of spirit, of the spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. So really quickly, let me say, I think in the churches I grew up in, the manifestation of the spirit was understood to mean a mark that the person acting in that gift was legitimate. And so we we took, and I don't, no one said it quite like this, but I think this is what I learned. Whatever, whatever I was meant to learn, I think this is what I did learn. That those who operated in gifts of speaking in tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge or wisdom, miracles of any kind, they were being legitimized, proven to be legitimate by that power. And that's not entirely wrong, mostly, but not entirely wrong. 
But the stress here, I'll, I'll share with you in a moment what Bonhoeffer says about, about that. But what what is said here is, is something very different from that, which is the manifestation of the Spirit is the working of the gifts in service, in activity that brings about the common good. The manifestation of the Spirit is the working of these gifts in service, in the form of, act, of agency or activity that accomplishes the common good. The community is built up. Not the individual alone, the community. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul will make that contrast explicit. That those who speak in a tongue build themselves up, but those who prophesy build up the community. And Bonhoeffer, in reflecting on that, draws this conclusion about the, the manifestation, the phanerosis of the Spirit. The manifestation of the Spirit is for the common good. Rather than remaining invisible, the Holy Spirit instead manifests publicly in the church community. Right, The Spirit manifests in the community. Now, of course, all, all of us who are, who are anywhere near the Pentecostal charismatic movement, our, our ears are perked. The visibility of the Spirit, however, is the common good. It is the common good. It is the symphony, the being there for one another. That's one word all hyphenated. So the sumphoron, Paul's word, the symphony, the common good, the coming together, the being there for one another, however you want to translate this, that is, Bonhoeffer says, the manifestation of the Spirit. The visibility of the Spirit is the good brought about in the community. Where is the Spirit? The Spirit is where the goodness of Jesus is shown in his body. And, and that help, gives us a way of understanding the relationship between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. A lot of us will have been, maybe not a lot of us, some of us will have been brought up in communities where there was tension between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Because there was tension between power and purity. And many of our communities erred on the side of celebrating and privileging I think that's the right word, the gifts of the Spirit in contrast to the fruit. Other communities arguably also construe them as in some way intention, but then err on the side of the fruit of the Spirit over against the, the gifts of the Spirit. But what Bonhoeffer's doing is insisting, no, 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 the, the visibility of the Spirit in these gifts is what brings the fruit of the Spirit about, right? So that one way of thinking about it is that the gifts of the Spirit is the work of the the nutrients within the life of the vine that bring about the fruit on the branches. The gifts bring about the fruit. That's how you know that they're gifts of the Spirit and activities of the Spirit and not works of our own ego or our own, or much less works of our enemy. Of the offices, he, he insists that all of these various gifts and offices are for the sake of service, not rule. And, and then he makes this observation that the, your service in a gift is for the sake of the common good, and your service in an office is for the sake of those gifts functioning for the sake of the common good, but that your office is bound to what he calls the vocatio, the, your vocation, your calling directly from God. There are two kinds, he says, those who receive a direct calling through Christ, and he gives Paul as an example, and those who receive the calling as it is mediated through the church community, though even this one, this latter one, happens only on the basis of God's will and the basis of a previously given vocatio. So there's a way in which some you have kind of exceptional callings, someone like Paul, but even those of us who have a, something less than an exceptional, an unexceptional calling, there still is a way in which there is a unique vocation. God is calling us. So this this is a, I, I don't know if, if Bonhoeffer was was quite a charismatic, but he, much of what he says you'll see is not it's not at odds with the charismatic life at all. Anything anything but that, in fact. So then, one more passage or two, if I have time, from from Bonhoeffer, a little later. He treats this again, and I think for the sake of time, I'll skip that. There, there's another passage where he goes, he works through it, and, and reaches more or less the same points. I mean, there's there's some nuance that's 
worth probably worth talking about, but I, I want to talk a little bit about what he says about miracles and signs and wonders, because I, I think it's relevant to all this, and then I'll, I'll wrap up. So this is, these are notes from his lectures in October 1936 through March 1937, and this is a lecture he gave on Acts 2, 43 to 47, and on the actions of Christians in Christ. And he's really interested in signs and wonders from Acts 2.43. Wonders and signs are not something self-evident or normal, diabolical in a religious community, but a church community, right? So this is, if you if you know much about Bonhoeffer, like Bart, like Jensen later, he has a a a, a trenchant critique of religion as over against church. Uh, Christos Yanaras is an Orthodox theologian who's written, I think, brilliantly about this as well. I was just yesterday looking at where Bonhoeffer says that Christianity, this is during his time in Barcelona, Christianity as a religion is not a gift of God. Christianity as a religion is not a gift of God. But a church community, which is a new creation of God and believes in the presence of the Holy Spirit, understands that wonders and signs are a part of it. Just as Jesus' deeds belong to him, so also do the deeds of the apostles belong to them. Two things are being said here. God's concrete intervention in that church community, that is the promise that has been fulfilled, the Holy Spirit is really present. But two, the consummation is not yet here. Behind this, our world, there is yet another world that is already breaking through and becoming visible here and there. Wonders and signs are happening in a church community, and only in such a community that genuinely reckons with the Holy Spirit and also awaits the coming of the kingdom. I want to read that again. Wonders and signs are happening in a church community, and only in such a community that genuinely reckons with the Holy Spirit and also awaits the coming of the kingdom. So that this, you know, what has now popularly called the already not yet, right? That to be people of signs and wonders is to be people who recognize that this is the Holy Spirit working. This is the person of God acting. It's not an extension of our own gifts, our own talents. And this is not yet the kingdom. It's a sign of the kingdom. The, the, Signs and wonders are God's free gifts and are not necessarily bound to the office of ministry. They keep the fear of God alive. Thus do they effectively support and surround the preaching of the gospel. What occurs is God's intention or intervention in the world. Its laws are suspended. Its temporary nature becomes evident. Right, so here he's seeing... The, the you know the miracle the signs and wonder it is in some way an intervention it is in some way a breaking of the law of nature but only to remind us that the laws of nature as we know them are not binding this is not the world as it should be it's a calling open to the the coming of god and therefore keeps the fear of god alive keeps the fear of god alive then later he's talking in, in a sermon on Luke 21, he's talking specifically about the coming of God and, and the need to believe in the God who's coming and developing this Advent-like disposition through prayer. He makes the observation again about Pentecost and the signs and wonders that break out around Pentecost, thinking about Acts 2 again. Pentecost, there is a rushing of the wind. The phenomena of nature are related to Jesus. Even with mathematics, their miraculous nature remains. That's a, a kind of gnomic line about all of nature, even math, is miraculous. But be that as it may, this is the path, this is the line I wanted to draw attention to. Wonders, like signs and wonders, if they draw my attention to Christ's return. So it's a kind of incomplete thought, just jotted down. Wonders if they draw my attention to Christ to Christ's return. Such can be a quite general natural phenomenon. Signs are signs of one who wants to show something. If that one is not understood, then the sign is nothing. 
and be it ever so symbolic, are the signs of the Antichrist unmistakably discernible? And he, there are other notes here. No need to get into that. But this, this is the key. Signs are signs of one who wants to show something. If that one is not understood, then the sign is nothing, even if it is ever so symbolic, be it ever so symbolic. So I, I think that's what, hold, for me, holds all of these passages together and holds together what we heard from Maximus and Origen and Augustine, that this does come down to delighting in God and fearing God in that sense, that sense that God is not an extension of my ego. God is not a resource for the life I want to make for myself, much less the life I want to force on others. And signs and wonders and gifts of the Spirit are a reminder to us that this is the Spirit's church, that this is a community God is building. There's a you know, obviously in Life Together, Bonhoeffer famously talks about those who, that God hates visionary dreaming because those who come to the community with their vision of the community always end up fracturing it with their ideals. But and I've gone way too long here. I just, just checked the time. Sorry about that. But the, I'll, I'll wrap up with this. The falling in love with God recognizing the otherness of God, that the, the personhood of God as something other than a projection of my own desires and fears. That is critical to living in community. And what Bonhoeffer says, not only in life together, but in sermons and lectures elsewhere at various times in his life, is that we do not build the church. Christ builds the church. And those who seek to build the church, who try to put their hand on it, always end up wounding and harming. So if, as I was saying earlier, there are those who are in Capernaum, who are unable to care for themselves, who it's, it's, it's almost certainly because they're either too young or because they're wounded by those who tried to build what is not theirs to build. And in a country like ours, in a time like this, I think about this all the time. I mean, I, I live and work in Tulsa. I have worked here at a church for a long time. And Tulsa is a deeply churchified city, right? Like it's, it is churchy and is marked by a kind of Christianity that has done some good, good of some kinds, but has also done all kinds of, of evil and has left so many people harmed and a lot of ministry. And I don't think I'm exaggerating to say the bulk of ministry in a city like this is caring for those who have been abused or misused or ignored or neglected by, by ministers. And what Bonhoeffer is doing, and I think again, he shares this with Augustine and Origen and Maximus is calling us back to God to become the kind of people who can care for others without harming them, without inflicting on them the wounds that then Christ has to heal. So I don't know that I can quite draw all the threads together, but that's what you have to do in the sermon. I, I will, I'll wrap it up with, with this. I think Mary in this is not going to surprise any of you who are still listening who've ever heard anything else I've ever said but I think Mary in this gospel text that we read today shows us what this looks like what it looks like to delight in God in ways that are good for others so that we are mature ones in the community bringing life to others not because we have it all together not because we have all the answers but because we have enough strength to bear our weakness and we delight in being with Jesus and we know how to keep our hands off of the event, right? We're not like Uzzah putting our hands on the ark. We're simply saying to Jesus, you've noticed, right? They have no wine. And when Jesus' response is, what concern is that to you? We know enough simply to 
to say what needs to come next if Jesus is acting. And that is precisely what Mary does. She simply turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And that, I think, is shows how well she knows her, her son, who is also her Lord. If he's going to do anything here, he's going to do it with the servants. If he's going to talk to anyone, he's going to talk to the people no one else would talk to. He's, he's going to collaborate with the people everyone else look past, look everyone else ignores. They, they, they fade into the background for everyone else, but not for Jesus. And that's why at the end of the passage, they're the only ones, the, the ones who carried the water, are the only ones who know what Jesus has done. That's exactly the way Jesus wants it. That's how he reveals his glory.